0: Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to First Peter chapter one. Uh, this morning we are finishing our sermon series on a life that is called. And our last calling that we're going to look at through this series is the calling to hope. So the sermon this morning um, I've titled, and I don't normally title them, uh, is Called to Hope in a World of Suffering from the God of Love. Called to Hope in a World of Suffering. From the God of love. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I log on to um, some of my seminary courses at New Orleans, and it's really fortunate that I'm able to do it on a computer here at the office. But uh, what they do is they broadcast your face into the classroom, and so there are students in the classroom. And every Tuesday and Thursday, before class begins, we take prayer requests. And just this week, uh, we had um, one of the ladies in our class. Her husband is a pastor, and they just found out that he has a very aggressive cancer that's very advanced. And they're trying to figure out details going from Houston to what they're going to do with their children. Um, We also had this young lady who is caring for uh, this child. I missed if it is uh, her child or a child that she's just caring for. Uh, But the young baby was born, and the heart was born on the wrong side of their body. And so they're considering major surgery for a baby. There was another young lady in the class who is awaiting blood results back to hear whether she has cancer or not. Now, this is a class of about 20 students representing all different walks of life. And as we even gather here this morning, this, this small congregation, we are a culmination of past experiences, hurts, and sufferings, or as James puts it, trials of various kinds that have shaped and molded and formed us into the people that we are today. When we experience suffering or we hear about the suffering in the lives of others, it can cause a level of disillusionment in our minds, in our deeply held beliefs about God and his character. Especially when we see the suffering of those who seem innocent, like childhood cancer or a child that's born with a heart on the wrong side of their body, it can cause us to say, wait, hold on a second, why, 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 why is this happening? It can make us even suspicious about God and his character and what we've been taught. That God is love, but all of this evil and suffering in the world, I don't know how that reconciles. And if we dare to even push in deeper into the depths of evilness in our world, the darkness is even greater. We might learn that while slavery is illegal almost everywhere, millions of men and women are and children are trapped in modern-day slavery. In India, for instance, entire families are enslaved in labor trafficking in brick kilns, rice mills, and garment factories where they are forced to work up to 20 hours a day. In the Dominican Republic, women and children are lured in sex trafficking with the promise of school or good-paying jobs that will help their families remove themselves from poverty. In the Philippines, children as young as two are sexually abused live and recorded for people to watch these are all statistics from international justice ministries and when i read that this week i just thought that's that's my baby jane and it produces this intense like grief and visceral Anger within us. There are an estimated 50 million people held in slavery today. Human trafficking generates $150 billion a day. And these are things that have caused people to get angry with God, to question God and His goodness. It has caused others to leave the faith or just simply settle with unbelief. These are hard things to swallow. How are we doing this morning? (laughs) That's a rough way to open up, right? Especially on a series that's called The Hope. That's tough. Those are tough things to swallow. So today, what we're going to look at is our calling for believers is to set our minds on hope that is to be revealed to us, or as Peter calls it, a living hope. We are called to a living hope in a world of suffering from a God of love. And what we're going to do is just look at these two verses uh, from Peter. And what I believe he's doing is unifying our story to the entire biblical story and to Jesus' story that gives us hope. So what I don't want to do this morning uh, is just to give you some Christian sayings that you're supposed to say uh, as you endure suffering and hope, like it's going to get better one day and you're supposed to be joyous after all of that. I know that the lives in this room have experienced suffering and heartache and pain, and you may be really wondering how all of this is reconciled with a God of love. But I think what Peter is doing in this passage today is much more than just giving us some mental assent to hold on to, but rather what he is trying to get us to see is that our very lives are fused together with Christ's. And this is a reason for immense joy and a living hope. It is a truth that we believe, but it's also a life that Christ gives us. So if you have your Bible, uh, I encourage you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at these two verses this morning, verses 3 and 4. And this is packed. It is so packed with what Peter is saying and how he's connecting it to the rest of the biblical story. Uh, So I hope that I'm able to share it in a good way that we can follow along this morning. It says this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, you may remember a few years ago when we worked through this letter of 1 Peter, These aren't just nice words that he is putting on a piece of paper and sending it to these churches. No, these churches have been scattered all throughout the area because of intense persecution. Uh, Historians believe that either the church was in the midst of or about to experience the persecution from Emperor Nero, who was famous for taking Christians and tying them to a stake alive and burning them alive. He would take them and he would put them in his garden and light them on fire for parties at night to provide light for the garden. Nero was known for taking Christians alive and sewing them into animal sacks and having wild dogs attack them. These Christians are going through an intense level of persecution and suffering. And if you have ever had a friend that is going through grief or loss or suffering, you know that when you go and speak to that friend, you are very careful about what you say. You want to use words that are right, that are to provide some sort of comfort, some sort of encouragement to help them through this season of life. So now imagine Peter. He knows that this persecution is happening. So he's not just putting flowery words on a piece of paper. What he is drawing them to is the entire biblical story and how it is founded in Jesus. So what is, what does it mean for us to have a living hope? Let's first start with what it's not. Let's get what it is not out of the way and off the table. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Here's what's really interesting here about the argument that Peter is making. The Greek word that we have translated to hope here in our Bible is elpida, which doesn't mean a hope like, I hope I get a raise at work, or I hope my team wins, or I hope I kill a deer this season. It doesn't mean that kind of hope. Elpida means a profound certainty. What Peter is trying to get us at is that Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is something... That is seen in a person, in the person of Jesus. Keller says this about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is historical, it's reasonable, and gracious. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Second, Christian hope is not a distraction. I don't know if you've ever had this experience with your kids or your grandkids when they fall down or they bonk their head or they hurt themselves pretty good. you got like that half of a split second where they look at you and you're looking at them and they're waiting to see your reaction for how you how they should react. So you know that they're in pain, but they have that like deer in headlights look. So you pick them up and you start singing and everything's going to be fine and look at the stars. We'll go outside, let the air hit you. It's not that bad. It's going to be okay, right? We try and distract them from the pain that they're feeling. But Christian hope is not that. Christian hope is not a distraction, and that's contrary to what popular atheist Richard Dawkins thinks about religion. When arguing against religion, he'll say things like, it's not meant to be true, it's just meant to be useful. Here's what Dawkins says. He says, religion helps people, rightly or wrongly, manage their emotional lives and especially cope with pain. But Christian hope is not a distraction. Peter is not trying to get these Christians to be distracted about what's happening around them. No, he's going to tell them to be sober-minded, to set your mind on the hope that's to be revealed to you. Remember these things, preparing your minds for action. Peter's not just trying to distract Christians from pain and suffering. He's trying to get them ready for what's happening Christian hope is not a distraction. It is a living hope, a profound certainty that is grounding us in the deliverance by, God, by the God of Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Piper says about it, about this elpida, this profound certainty. This confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus Instead, it puts us in the marketplace, on the battlefield, where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline, a spiritual blood transfusion. So what does it mean for us to have a living hope in the midst of suffering? And I'll say it again, I think Peter is connecting us to Jesus, but also the entire biblical story for us to see it all rightly. So this morning, if you're here and you're dealing with suffering or some bitterness or anger with God, like, why is this happening in my life? Just consider one thing about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus uh, was someone who experienced in Saul intense suffering and pain. In the ministry of Jesus, he encountered many people that were going through intense suffering or pain But when he encountered those things, it never questioned, it never caused him to question God. When Jesus saw suffering and pain in the world, it never caused him to become suspicious of his Father in heaven. It never caused him to get angry at God. It caused him to get angry at something else, but never God. So what our goal here today is to see how human suffering, to see human suffering how Jesus saw it. So that we can imitate his response in the world. Not so that we become many saviors, but that we pick up our cross and follow him. Or as Paul puts it, it is not I, I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians, to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. So how does this entire biblical story produce this image of living hope for us in the midst of suffering? Well, when we think about the Old Testament... A lot of different images can conjure up in our minds. Like if you were to think about Old Testament stories, we might think of uh, the great flood or fire and brimstone raining down. But when Jesus thinks of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, he thinks of something different. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, if you want to flip over there, Luke 24, verse 45 through 47. Right here, Jesus has just, uh, he has resurrected He has come back from the dead, and he is having a Bible study of sorts with his disciples. And here is what he says. Uh, Here's what the gospel writer Luke says about what happened uh, that evening. In verse 45, he says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is opening their minds to understand these scriptures. He is um, summarizing all of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament into this. That the Christ should suffer, die, and on the third day raise, repentance and forgiveness proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever tried reading the Old Testament, but I don't see this theme often. Like, if you open up the first chapter of Ezekiel, this is hard to read, or Isaiah, you might not see it immediately. But it is everywhere. It's everywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me show you a few. So here's what Jesus' summary is of the Bible. On this next slide, I have it kind of pictured here for us. Jesus is saying that the Christ, the chosen one, the righteous representative... On God. He is the one that represents God to the nations, that he is going to suffer, he's going uh, to cry out, he's going to die, and through this he's going to be raised to life, to resurrection, bring new life and blessing to the nations. Now this is something that we see starting on the very first pages of the scripture. I want to show you how this structure plays out. So on the very first pages of the Bible, what do we get? We get creation. We get human made in the image of God. And what are they to be? They are to be representatives of God. They are go, to go out and multiply and fill the earth. But what happens? Sin, violence, the blood cries out. We see uh, that Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. And then destruction continues to go and go and go further down until God uh, gets to this point where he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to remove myself. I am uh, sorry that I've made humanity and it's going to be done. But if we look at Genesis, there's this one, there's this one person Who is a new, uh, who's going to bring new life and blessing? Noah. His name literally means rest. What does God do on the seventh day? He rests. We see the recreation coming back through Noah. That Noah is going, he's going to restart with Noah. And then with Noah, he's going to bring forth new life and blessing to the nations. So we see Noah's life come on board. So Noah to Abraham. Noah, he is the new representative. Once he comes off the ark, it says that he uh, builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. He intercedes on behalf of the people and they're going to start new. They're going to start fresh. It even says that Noah plants a vineyard. But this could even be translated that Noah plants a garden. But this time it's a new type of fruit that trips up humanity. We see that through Noah... Uh, that there's a shameful act that takes place in a tent that brings forth death and destruction. And it carries on this whole entire season of death and destruction up into this big empire city called Babylon, where people are making a name for themselves, and the blood is crying out, death and destruction is everywhere. But what does God do then? He brings forth a new representative in Abram who's going to partner with God to be a blessing to all nations, who's going to intercede for the people on, in this way. And this story is replayed over and over. You can put this story on repeat. You think of Joseph and his brothers Joseph is the one who is beloved by his father. His brothers, they throw him into a pit, they leave him for dead. But Joseph is raised back to new life to do what? Bring blessing back to his brothers, to restore blessing back to the nations. You can do this with Isaac and Jacob, Samuel, David, Ruth, Esther. Or as Jesus puts it, the entire scriptures are proclaiming about the Messiah, the Christ, the righteous one, the representative who is going to suffer and die, and then through him, bring new life. When we think about suffering, uh, and immense suffering, our minds often go to the story of Job. And Job can be a problem story for a lot of us, because we think of the good life that Job leads, and then he experiences this suffering, it seems like out of nowhere. But if we look at the story of Job, it maps on to this biblical story, uh, in Job chapter 1, it says this about Job, that he is righteous. He is upright in all of his ways. He does not let his, he does not do evil. God even says this about Job. There is no one like him on the earth. This Job, he is the man. And he's called my servant. But what happens with Job? He has immense Pain and suffering, destruction goes throughout his entire property. Death is all around him. He loses his entire family. But then what happens with Job is that he is raised, he's restored, he's brought to new life. But then also what's interesting, if you flip over to Job chapter 42, he had these three friends that were just somewhat brutal to Job. And God tells the three friends, like, I am not happy with you. I'm not happy with the way that you've handled things, and I will not listen to your prayers. He said, but I will listen to Job's. He said, so go and make a sacrifice, bring seven, I think it's seven rams and seven bulls, or seven goats and seven bulls, make a sacrifice, and then have Job pray for you. And then I will listen to your prayers. What's also interesting is that if you look at the history of these three friends, they represent also the nations. So here's what Jesus is saying about his life and death and what the Hebrew Scriptures are all about. It's about the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the representative, who is going to suffer and die and then he's going to be raised to new life to be an intercessor on behalf of the nations, to bring blessing and new life to him. Do you see how the story plays out? Do you see how uh, these things are tracking together? When we read the story of Job, who does it sound familiar to? Who is Jesus? He's the one who, is, who the Father is well pleased. This is my son, the chosen servant, the righteous one. He goes through immense suffering and pain. He cries out to the Father. And then he's resurrected from the dead. So, when Peter is comforting the churches, what do you think he has on the brain? I think that Peter has this Bible study, of a sense, that he had with Jesus after his resurrection. And this is what he wants uh, his people and his churches to see. So turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is Lord in Christ. Christ is a title. It's not his last name. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. What happens to the Messiah? He is killed through his death. But through his death brings resurrection that gives us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never spoil perish, or fade. What this means for us is that when we face suffering and death, we can face it with a profound certainty because Jesus is alive. So what is our hope? Our hope is in that Jesus is our righteous intercessor. Hinduism says that you can't get resurrected, but rather reincarnated, receiving the blessing or punishment in the next life. There was a soccer coach years ago Uh, I think in the early or the late 90s that just took a lot of heat because he explained his belief or his view of Hinduism that said um, people with special needs are suffering now in this life because of the life that they formerly lived. Hinduism says that you don't get resurrected, you just get reincarnated. And in your reincarnation, you're paying for the sufferings that you have. Atheism says you don't get resurrected, you just get recycled. Recycled. Your body deteriorates into the earth. But what Jesus says is that because I live, you too shall live. So our hope is that in Jesus Christ, all things will be made new. That we will have a physical, bodily resurrection. That the injustices, sufferings, laments, trials, tragedies that you have experienced in this world will be brought to new life because of Christ Jesus. Our hope is that one day, in Revelation, it says that he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Our hope is that one day we will also be reunited with those who are in Christ Jesus. I know many of us in this room have lost loved ones, but the hope of Scripture, that those who are in Christ Jesus, is that they are not lost. It's not like they can't be found. They are safe with him, and that our hope is that we'll be reunited with him. Our hope is that sin will be no more. Our hope is that the love of God we sometimes wonder and question because of our frailty and suffering will be fully experienced and realized. Our hope is that, like Job, we will see our God. Job, when he's going through his prayers and he's crying out and he's getting angry and he's asking why, his prayers get more and more and more and more singular. To where his only prayer is this, if I can just see the face of God, if I can just see God, and then God shows up, and Job responds in repentance and humility. But when we see the face of Jesus, we will respond in awe and humility and adoration and worship, but we will also have restoration and acceptance and forgiveness and mercy. You see, there are right and wrong ways to read Job, especially in the midst of our suffering. The wrong way to read Job is just to say, Man, if I can just endure, if I can just endure this suffering, then God will bless me and bless me tenfold. I've often thought, like as a child, like when things weren't going my way, like I'll just make it out and God will bless me. Like these things will come to me. And they do. They will in the inheritance that's to come. You see, Job is blessed tenfold. And for us, in our lives, we will be blessed tenfold because we are with Christ Jesus. We are with him. Things will be made new. So here's what I think it means then uh, with Peter uh, putting this uh, on a biblical narrative, on the Jesus. Here's what I think it means to have a living hope. First, a living hope endures present suffering By looking to future promises and remembering past faithfulness. A living hope endures present suffering by looking to future promises and remembering past faithfulness. Here's what Peter says shortly after this Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now I've heard this passage preached many different ways. I've heard it preached that we prepare our minds uh, for action by getting ready to defeat the enemies that cause suffering. Uh, I've heard it preached that being sober-minded just simply means don't get drunk. But what Peter is doing here is connecting us back to a deeper biblical story. There are a few key words that Peter is using. He's saying, be holy as I am holy. He brings up exile, being ransomed, an inheritance, or a promise that's to come, or a promised land. What story does Peter have in his mind? It's the Exodus, which again replays the theme of a chosen intercessor. Moses is chosen to be the one that goes before Pharaoh, They go through suffering and death and slavery. They pass through the waters. And they are being brought to new life and blessing in the promised land that's to come. What Peter is telling us to do, what he is reminding us, is to look forward to the hope that's being revealed to us, that's going to be revealed to us, by remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. He has been faithful before. He is faithful in Christ Jesus so you can endure. He calls us to be obedient children. What does it mean to be an obedient child? Is it to do everything I say? If Russell did everything that I said, that'd get us probably halfway there. What I want Russell to do, though, is I want Russell to trust me, to know when I instruct him to go a certain direction or when I do a certain thing, that his father has his best interest for him. Obedience is not simply right or wrong. It is that. Obedience is doing right things. But obedience is a deep trust in the Father. What happens when uh, the Hebrews are brought out of Egypt and they look back to the past, but they don't consider God's past faithfulness, they consider the fish the food that they ate? How many times in our lives have we just, like through just a season of things just going wrong, have we said, man, if I could just go back, if I could go back to X date and press reset and restart, I'd figure it out. I'd do it all better. I'd avoid these problems. There's probably a moment in your life where you think, that you could think of to say, I would go back here and restart. Maybe it's something with your children. Maybe it's a a former job. Maybe it's a disagreement that you've had. But I'm here to tell you that even if you could go back, we'd still mess it up. We need one who is perfect and pure in all of the ways. The good news of the gospel isn't that I can go back and redo things and make it right. The good news of the gospel is that I have made real mistakes, that have hurt real people, that have real consequences to those things, but there is a real God who loves me despite of these things and intercedes on my behalf, who gives me new life through these things. This means that a living hope endures present suffering by looking to future promises and remembering the Lord's Past faithfulness. But it also means this a living hope is present. A living hope means that I can endure the suffering that I am going through right now, or I can enter into suffering on behalf of someone else, to help someone else. We read it this morning that God is our refuge and strength, an ever present help in trouble. Here's what this means that the eternal Jesus is present with us now. That the eternal Jesus is present with us now by His Spirit. And when we close our eyes in death, we will simply open them up to realize His full presence. I was reading a story uh, this week by John Ortberg, uh, and he was talking about a ministry uh, that he had. And I guess he would call it a ministry because when he tells a story, it's not something that he... Uh, gratefully did. He talks about how he would go to the state-run convalescent hospital and how it was not a pleasant place. He says this, It is a large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. He said, I went there once a week for four years But I never wanted to go, and I always left with a sense of relief. One day, though, Ortberg says, he goes to the hospital. He tries out a new wing that he had not visited before, hoping to find a few there who were alive enough to receive a, a flower and a few words of encouragement. But the hallway that he chose was worse than before. It was the worst one that he had gone down. And it was people who were strapped to carts or gurneys that were looking lost and helpless. And as he neared the end of the hallway, he saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. He says this, "'Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over her ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was eaten by cancer.' There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors send uh, the new nurses to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand the sight of this woman, they could withstand anything else in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. So, one day, in this hallway, I run into Mabel and I said, Here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower to her face, and she tried to smell it. And she spoke garbled, but from a clear mind. And she said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know. I'm blind. He said, of course. And so I pushed her chair down the hallway to a place where she could find some alert patients. I stopped the car, and Mabel extended it to a woman and said, here, this is from Jesus. Mabel had grown up on a small farm that managed, uh, she managed only with her mother until her mother died. She ran the farm alone from until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. Over 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Her three roommates were vegetables who screamed occasionally and never talked. They often soiled their beds, and because the hospital was understaffed, the stench would last for hours and be overpowering. Ortberg says, I continued to visit Mabel and would read Scripture with her, and often when I would pause, she would continue to recite the passage. One particularly hectic week, frustrated and going in ten different directions, Ortberg said, I wondered what Mabel would have to say about this. So to get away from everything that was going on, he got up and he went to the hospital. And he went and sat with Mabel, and he asked her, day after day and hour after hour, what is it that you think about when you're here? She says, I think about my Jesus. What do you think about when you think of him? She said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she started to sing this hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. How can we live today with a living and active and alive hope? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he has promised us his spirit and that as we draw close to him, he will draw close to us and that we can engage our minds through the word of truth. And that we can live life in such a reality in a way that the eternal Jesus is present here with us. And that we can have this living hope that no matter the suffering, the circumstances, whatever is happening in our life, that he has an inheritance for us. The resurrection from the dead that is unspoiled, unfading, and it will never perish. Speaking of this inheritance, there are... A lot of wonderful things I believe that we will experience in heaven. I don't think that it's going to be this place where we're just sitting on the clouds or that it's this eternal worship service. I don't think that at all. Because what Scripture says about heaven is that it's not just heaven where we go to, but that God is recreating earth and heaven. That it's going to be where He is living with His people again. And so it's going to be reminiscent of a way in the garden where we work and we do and we rest and we're with our Father. I think that there's going to be untold joys about heaven. And this is the inheritance that we have. Here's the thing I think that's so neat, uh, what Peter says uh, in this passage. Notice how he pits death against our inheritance. What happens in death? Things perish. Things spoil. Things spoil. Things fade, but the inheritance that we have will never perish. It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. I think that there are a lot of wonderful things that we will get to experience in heaven that our mind does not have the, the ability to comprehend. But I think there's going to be one thing that's better than the rest. You see, one day, uh, my father's going to die, and I'm the only son, me and my sister. And when, when my mother and my father pass away, Uh, They are going to leave us an inheritance. They're going to leave us the property they have, the things that they have, all all that they have accrued over their life. And they've done well. They have nice things. And it will be a blessing monetarily for me and my sister. But you know what? I'll always want more than their things. You know what? I'll always desire more than having their stuff. I'll always want my father instead. I'll always want him instead. Rather than his things, rather than what he has to offer, rather than what he's left us, I would rather have my mother and my father. Here's the wonderful thing about heaven one day and the great hope that we have is that we will have Jesus, all of him, fully realized. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, and that hope makes us alive That hope makes us alive because we know that death is just a part of our new birth into life. We have a living hope and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. So three things to close for us this morning. Jesus invites you to make his story your story. That we are now hidden in Christ Jesus. That we are one with him. Two, Jesus gives us a living hope that's active today. We set our minds on it for the future and we live our lives by it. And that one day, one day, Jesus is going to make all things new. And it's going to be the resurrection of our physical body. Jesus and his disciples could have avoided this whole thing of the resurrection. Did it really happen if Jesus would have simply said, I will rise again one day spiritually? You see, because then no one can discredit it. Because he would just say that he would die and then that Jesus is spiritual somewhere. We don't know where he's at. He spiritually rose. But he doesn't say that. And he says, I'm going to rise again bodily. And that when he sees his disciples, he invites them to touch his hands. There is a real physical Jesus that rose from the dead. And he says, because I live, you too shall live. And this gives us a great living and active hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, I confess um, for myself and I would imagine for others in this room, it is very hard to live in this act of hope uh, with a lot of pain and suffering around us. It is much easier for me to focus on my problem or my trial or my discontentment than it is to then focus on you. But Father, I pray by the power of your spirit and the wonderful goodness of your word that we bind these things, these truths to our heart to see you as our living hope. Help us to be more like Mabel, less of ourselves, blind, deaf, strapped to a chair, because it seems like that when we are less of ourselves, that we have more of you. Father, help us to pray the prayer in Scripture that we must decrease and you must increase. Help us to see uh, that we can enter into suffering and we can endure suffering with a living hope in you, Christ Jesus. So Father, I pray that as we close this service, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, that does not attach themselves, fuse themselves to you in this living hope that you offer freely to us, I pray that today be that day that they repent and they are saved. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.